we, we've been on a topic about our sins being forgiven. It's an awesome topic. And it got interrupted. I wasn't quite finished with the series. It got interrupted by two amazing holy days, though. It got interrupted by Palm Sunday, and it got interrupted by the resurrection of Jesus. And it appeared like today the resurrection of Jesus was still alive and well in the place. You know, isn't that true? Is <laughs> it still alive and well, the resurrection of Jesus? So we've been talking about how that Jesus actually forgave our sins and removed our sins and carried our sins and eliminated our sins. And so we looked at verse after verse after verse after verse. We've looked at what Jesus said. We've looked at what Paul said. We've looked at what John said. We've looked at what Peter said. We've looked at what James said. We've looked everywhere around the Bible. And we find out that our sins have been eradicated, eliminated, destroyed. As preachers used to preach, they've been thrown into the sea of forgetfulness. They've been cast as far as the east is from the west. They're to be remembered no more. They're gone. They're dealt with. They're destroyed. I don't know how to make it any clearer than that. And this is foundational teachings in the Word of God. Now think about this. If all my sins are forgiven and they'll never be counted against me again, which is exactly what the Bible teaches, then that means there is no sin marring or tainting my life. So you're saying we never sin? I didn't say that. I said Jesus says our sins are forgiven and removed. And God tells us that, that since that's true, nothing is marring us spiritually. It also lets us know this. This is something I want you all to know. If your sins are forgiven like God says they are, and they're removed, and they're never going to be held against you again, then what is the fear that we have that the wrath of God will come upon us if, if we're forgiven? You, it, would, it would be an ultimate injustice to punish us for something that Jesus was already punished for. Did you hear that? Jesus was already punished for it. And it would be... Uh, unjust to punish two people for the same thing so Jesus has freed us from all that now this is so amazing that's why it's good news it's it's the gospel it's that Greek word euangelion which means extremely incredibly good news sometimes you get good news oh my goodness you know I got an appointment that I didn't think I was going to get and an opening happened for me that's good news I got a great deal in my car that's good news I got a little promotion at work that's great news but the gospel is euangelion it is extremely great news I mean, if, if the doctor told you that, that they think you have something that you're going to be dead with in a, in a day or two, and then the report comes back and they say, it's all gone, you, you aren't sick, that, that's, like, that's like really incredible good news. That, that trumps that you got a good deal on the car you bought. This is really, really huge news. So when we look at this, this solid teaching of the scripture, there's something in us that just wants to say, but, but Tracy, I don't know. Well, well, hold on, there is no but Tracy. This is the scripture. This isn't fringe stuff either. This is foundational teaching 101 that I think we still have a hard time embracing. I'm talking to me too because it's so glorious. It's so amazing that we really have a hard time getting our minds and our hearts around it. But when we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I don't have an overhead for that. But we've touched on it many times. 2 Corinthians 5, like verses 17 through 21, we will read that and we'll discover this. That if anyone is in Christ, now we're going to deal with that a lot today. What's that mean to be in Christ? Does that mean you had a survey and you saw 15 different religions on there and you said, well, I'm none of those, I guess I must be Christian? Now there's more to it than that, so we'll deal with that. But if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come. This is what the Bible says, the old is gone, the new has come. And the Bible says that God's no longer counting our sins against us. Now we're in the Bible belt here, so we're supposed to be people that really believe the Bible. Do you believe that? That your sins are forgiven, they'll no longer be counted against you? 
okay? Let's let that sink in. And then it says that God took all of our sins. What did he do with our sins? Well, he's just, he punished them. He put them all upon Jesus. And then Jesus, he put all of Jesus' righteousness upon us. And so now, according to 2 Corinthians 5 and many, 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 many other scriptures in the Bible, I am the righteousness of God in Christ and all my sins have been removed. I don't know how to get any more righteous than that. I don't know how to get any more sin-free than that. And in fact, when I think about how to do it, it actually is very disrespectful because we're kind of saying to God, God, the sacrifice of your son wasn't enough. I need to help out here. Okay, and so we look at that and say, we're the righteousness of God in Christ and we're forgiven. So we're going to look today at sin and salvation as we wrap up this message on our sins being forgiven. And I found another verse. Just keep reading the Bible. You'll find them all over the place. Verses about our sin being removed. In Hebrews 9, 26, the last half of 26, the last half of verse 28, it says, but now, once for all time, he has appeared, he's talking about Jesus, at the end of the age to, what's the next two words? To remove sin. Jesus appeared. Why did he appear? To remove sin. How? By his own death as a sacrifice. Jesus became an atoning sacrifice, a sin offering, and when he died, he removed sin. I'll let you know something else, too. It's even huge. The whole world's forgiven right now. Now, I want to clarify that. Not everybody's enjoying that forgiveness. But the sins of the whole world have been paid. Jesus isn't coming back and say, I only covered a few of them, but I'm going to come back again. The sins of the whole world are repaid if you'll receive this beautiful gift. The gift's already been purchased. He's holding it out to you if you'll just receive it, receive the gift. So it says, look at this beautiful verse. It says, he, Jesus, will come again. We believe that, don't we? He will come again, not to deal with our sins. He's already dealt with our sins. He's already paid for our sins. He's already removed our sins. He will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all those who eagerly are waiting for him. Salvation. We know this, the culmination of our salvation is not yet here because of the broken world and the bodies that we are in. But one day, that will be made complete in Jesus. But we do have a deposit. We have a deposit of the promise guaranteeing what is to come. We have the Holy Spirit in us as believers. So Jesus has removed all of our sins. Now, that's incredible information for the Christian, but let's define what a Christian is. Now, this is very important. This is eternal stuff. So pay attention. This is eternal stuff. Uh, A gentleman I always loved reading his stuff. He's a Christian man. He went on to be with the Lord, but he's also a motivational speaker in the secular world. His name was Zig Ziglar. What a name, Zig Ziglar. Zig Ziglar said, it's a shame that people spend more time thinking about and planning a vacation than they do thinking about and planning their eternity. I thought, wow, so give me your ear. I want to make sure that you can decide today whether or not you are a Christian according to what the Scripture says. So there are a lot of people that think they're Christians. For instance, there's somebody who's probably said, hey, you know what, I believe in God. I believe in heaven and hell. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven when I die. So I'm going to say a little prayer And I want to sprinkle a little Jesus on my life. Now, I have no intention of living for him, serving for him, changing the course of my life. I totally intend to live my life how I want to live it, the way I want to live it, you know, all that stuff. But I do want Jesus sprinkled a little on my life because, a couple reasons. One, I want him to answer my prayers. I'm going to have some prayers for that promotion at work or for that big bet I have on that game or whatever. I need him to 
touch and bless my life. Yes, again, the life I have no intention of living for him, but I want his blessing on my life. And then when I draw my last breath, I want to go to heaven. Now, according to the Bible, that's not a Christian. It's not a Christian that just says, I, I want to sprinkle some Jesus on my life so things can be good, but again, I'm going to live my life my way. I think one of the most threatening verses to us is this, where the scripture says we must no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. So we live for him. There's all kinds of, I mean, people may think, I, I love the ministry of, of church. Around this region, there's all kinds of wonderful churches. They do a lot of wonderful things, and that, that tenderizes my heart. I must be a Christian because I like churches. That doesn't make you a Christian. Or others will say, you know what, I have a real affinity and fondness towards Jesus. I'm going to let you in on something. The world really loves Jesus. Religions love Jesus. Now, sometimes it's the Jesus that they believe he is, not the one he really portrays in Scripture. Because you'll hear people say this, Jesus, uh, a harsh word never came out of his mouth. I said, did you read the Bible? He looked at the self-righteous Pharisees and said, you're of your father the devil. I don't think he said it like this, ah, oh, you're of your father the devil. I think he said, you're of your father the devil. You're whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you're full of dead men's bones. I mean, he, he would say some really harsh things. A Syrophoenician woman came to him and said, Lord, my, my daughter's vexed and dying. And you know what his first response to her was? Nothing. He ignored her. And the disciples even said, get rid of her. And then finally, these beautiful words came out of his, out of his mouth. It's not suitable for me to give the children's bread to dogs. Wow. Now, she really got something out of Jesus, though, because of her faith in her heart. It's a beautiful story. But the Jesus we have pictured in our minds, so people think, well, I love Jesus, I love his teachings, he was a great leader. That's true. Most people think that about Jesus. That doesn't make you a Christian. Well, I believe he's the son of God. I want to tell you this. Demons believe he's the son of God. But they're not born again. Hmm, Interesting. How about this? I attend church with some regularity, and I've even been known to throw a 20 in the plate on occasion. That surely makes me a Christian. No, it doesn't. Oh, I'm from a whole long line of preachers. My great-granddad was a preacher. My granddad was a preacher. My dad was a preacher. I surely am in, right? No, that doesn't make you. I mean, you might be in, but that's not what gets you in, is that your great-granddad was a preacher. Hmm, interesting. Well, I want you to know this. There are professors that teach in colleges who teach the Bible and they teach theology, the study of God, who are not born again. They're not Christians. They may be wonderful, nice people and great scholars, but they're not Christians. There are men and women stepping into pulpits today teaching people nice little stories out of the Bible or oftentimes just nice little secular stories. They kind of believe that we should be good people and do nice things, and I believe that too. But their message is void of Jesus, and their life is void of Jesus. There are men and women stepping into pulpits, leading churches, who are not Christians. It gets a little scary. There are Sunday school teachers and deacons and elders and board members and, and worship leaders and, and pianists and organists who, who are filling up churches today who are not Christians. There are people sitting in pews and chairs all over the world today who are not Christians. If you're one of those people, this is your day. We're glad you're here. We don't want to beat you up. We want to give you the hope of heaven and of eternal life.
But what does, how do we get that? What's, what's the Bible say? Now, every now and then I'll run into somebody and they'll say, well, you know, the Bible's just a person's interpretation about what it says. It's really not. People say, the Bible's so hard to understand. It's really not very hard to understand. Now, I admit, if you get in Revelations or you read some Old Testament prophecy, you may be a little confused about it, but there's all kinds of stuff in the Bible. Jesus tells the woman caught in adultery, I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. Was anybody confused? Did she say, I'm not really sure what he's saying? The Bible says, hey, you who have been stealing, you must steal no more. You must do something useful with your hands so you can bless others. Well, I, I wonder what he really means. There's no conf- Most of the things in the scripture are very plain, very clear, very easy to understand. It's, it's rare that things are hard to understand. So what are we to do? How, how do we know if we're Christians? Well, John writes this in 1 John 5, 12 through 13. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. Now, in Scripture, when you believe something or you have faith in something, it's being all in. So, you know, if somebody says, well, I, I believe Jesus, you know, was a savior, that's not being all in. When you have faith in something, you're all in. When you have belief in something, you're all in. That's biblical belief. That's biblical faith. That's biblical trust. That's biblical information and knowledge that you have received. And it's life-changing. But everybody, did I read the rest of it? I write these things, you believe in the name of the Son of God so you may know, yes, that you may know that you have eternal life. But there's a lot of people that think they have eternal life. Have you ever noticed that? You ever watch TV? Everybody who dies has gone to heaven. Did you notice that? I mean, your uncle's in prison for being a serial killer and he shanked five people and he got killed and we all go, he was a really good guy. He had a really great heart. He's in a better place. I'm going, is he? I'm not really so sure about that. Now, can somebody who's done all that give their life to Jesus and be transformed and go to heaven? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I like to know that Jesus is the source of that, not just being good, which is another big thing. People say, I think I'm a Christian because I'm a pretty good person. Compared to whom? I'm a pretty good person. And as you often hear me say, usually the tagline at the end of that is, I ain't no murderer or nothing. Well, you can be a murderer in past tense and give your life to Jesus and be born again. But we think my good deeds, I'm a pretty good person. Everybody thinks they're a pretty good person. Well, but what's the Bible say? What's the Bible teach? Everybody thinks they're going to heaven. There's these two brothers, and they were just cantankerous, ornery, sinful, awful people. And the whole community knew them. And if it was illegal, they were involved in it. If it was a way to scam you out of money, they would do it. If there was a way to to cheat you or take advantage of you, they would do it. They were immoral, ungodly, you name it. If there was a sin out there, they, they had done it and liked it. Well, one of them passes away. Well, again, everybody wants to go to heaven, so the one brother says, hey, goes to a pastor and says, I want you to preach my brother's funeral. He says, I'm not your brother's pastor, and I don't feel, well, he didn't have a pastor. But I want you to preach my brother's funeral. I want you to tell the people this community who thinks badly about us. I want you to tell the people this community that my brother was a saint. (sighs) He said, I I just, I'm sorry, I can't do that. He said, okay, let me explain it to you this way. 
I know you guys are in the middle of a building fund, and you could use a lot of money. I'm going to give you a really, really huge offering if you will tell people my brother was a saint. Ah, the pastor said, I don't know. But then he saw what the figure was going to be, and he paused for a minute, and he thought, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. So he gets up there to preach his brother's funeral, and he starts out, and he, the casket's behind, if you've ever been to the funeral before, and he puts his hand back here, and he says, this guy back here was the biggest crook, liar, cheat, immoral, womanizing, scam artist that you'll ever meet. But compared to his brother here, this guy was a saint. Um, so <laughs> it's all in how you spin it, I guess. Oh, my goodness. According to the Bible, what gives eternal life? Jesus. Jesus tells a story in John about heaven and mansions and, and in my father's house and all this stuff. And he tells his disciples, he said, you know where I'm going and you know the way. Well, Thomas raises his hand and said, I'm sorry, we don't know where you're going and we don't know the way. And then Jesus says this in John uh, 14. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father, to heaven, because that's what the topic was all about, except through me. Very interesting because Jesus is very exclusive and inclusive at the same time. What I mean by that is he didn't say all roads lead to heaven. He said, I'm the only way to get to heaven, but I make that road available to everyone. I make it available to everyone. Anyone who wants to call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But he gives three little pointers, because we're going to examine ourselves. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, I don't have a verse for this, but 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul challenges the Corinthians. He said, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And so we're encouraged in Scripture to examine ourselves and test ourselves, and that's what we're going to do today. So Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. There's three criteria, three evidences of salvation. The first one is the way. When you gave your life to Jesus, did Jesus put you on a new path? Did, did you get on a different path? I didn't say, were you perfect? See, we really get confused about this. We're looking for perfection. God's looking for progress. And you say, but I think we need to be perfect. Okay, we actually are. This is Hebrews 10. Love this verse. Hebrews 10 tells us about our great Savior and our great high priest. And he says, our high priest Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So we got both things going on. We got the perfection of Jesus in our lives and then the progress, the pathway of living that out the rest of our days. And so we're looking for perfection sometimes instead of for, for progress. So you're on a new path. Remember the guy I told earlier? He's heading this way, and he says, I want a little Jesus in my life to bless me and go to heaven, but I have no intention of changing the way I'm living. He just keeps going like this. That's not salvation. Jesus is a way. He puts you on a different path. He's also truth. There's something interesting about truth. Not just truth that you learned in your head to pass on a test, but truth you embrace is always transformative always transformative. So if you embrace Jesus and the truth of Jesus, your life will begin to be transformed. Maybe not perfect instantly, but you'll be in the progress, in the process. 
And so all truth is transforming. So is Jesus, has Jesus transformed and or is transforming your life as you yield to him? For believers, our lives are transformed. We're moving from glory to glory every day. We haven't arrived. We have, spiritually speaking, because Jesus has made us perfect forever, but we're being made holy as we walk this and live this out in our lives. The third thing Jesus has mentioned is that he is life. We know that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, here's some other things that reveal salvation. One is a love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. If you say, I love Jesus, I just hate his people. Well, you got a problem. Because John says over and over and over, this is how we know how we pass from death into life. That we have a love for the brethren. There's a change in attitude as a second sign of salvation. Change in attitude towards sin. And the third one is bearing fruit, which is a churchy term for growing. In Galatians chapter 5, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, meekness, self-control, all these wonderful fruit. And they're attributes of the Holy Spirit. So as we get born again, we start seeing this, we're bearing fruit. Again, maybe not perfect, but we're making progress. So let's look at these things. The first one is from the point of view of somebody who has not given their life to Jesus. 1 John 3.14. No, I'm sorry, it's the second one. This one is a believer. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life, but a person who has no love is still dead. So that's a, a sign. Do you have love for your brothers and sisters? I get it. Please hear me. There's a brother or sister in Jesus that just drives you crazy. I get that. There's somebody who irks you. There's somebody you have no desire to go on vacation with or be best buddies with. I get that, but there's this overall love. And by the way, just in this little gathering here, you can't be best buddies with everybody just in here, let alone in the entire Christian world. So, but is there a love for the brothers and sisters? Is there something in you that says, I, I, I can't wait to see my brothers and sisters and fellowship with my brothers and sisters? The second one, a change in our attitude towards sin, this is the one where this is how unbelievers are. In 2 Peter 2.18, the Living Bible, it says they proudly boast about their sins and conquests. And using lust as their bait, they lure back into sin those who have just escaped from such wicked living. See, when you become a Christian, your attitude and relationship with sin changes. Now, I want to say this. You may have be a trained professional in sin in your flesh, and so your flesh may not have developed an immediate disdain for sin, but your born-again spirit has. And you now have, for the first time in your life, a war going on. That's a good thing. You didn't used to have a war going on. You used to go sin, live like Lucifer himself, and would go into work or school on Monday morning and brag about it. This is how awesome it was this weekend. This is how awesome my immorality and my partying, my drinking, and all this stuff that I did this weekend. But now, all of a sudden, something has changed in you. There was a person many years ago who came to church here, and, and they got saved, born again, and they were just a new believer. And they weren't like a crazy partier, as far as I know, but they were a week or two later, they decided to go to a party because they were going to share Jesus with their partying friends. Well, they got to the party, and it didn't work out so well. They actually didn't share Jesus much. They partied a lot, okay? They came in on Sunday and said, I feel awful. I feel horrible. I went to the party with all great intentions to share Jesus with people and let people know about God. And I ended up partying instead. 
I feel awful. And I looked at them and said, that's great. I think they were confused, like, so partying is great? No, not the partying part, but you used to behave like that, and then on Monday, go into work and brag about it. Now you've shown up to the house of the Lord and say, something's not right. Something's cutting against the grain of this new creation. I said, that's what's beautiful. Something's changed in your life. Something's transformed. It now doesn't sit well with you to sin. So that's a beautiful sign of salvation. Now, how about bearing fruit here in a moment? When we think about sin, though, I want to be clear on this. People may say, so after I'm a Christian, will I sin? I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to promote it. I'm not trying to encourage you in it. But I am going to tell you the reality of it. Yes, you will. Now, there's somebody here saying, that's horrible, Pastor. You shouldn't tell people that they will sin. Well, I've never met anyone who's been born again for over 24 hours who hadn't already sinned. And I don't think there's anybody sitting in here today who would say, well, I haven't sinned since I became a believer. Well, there's your first one lying like that. You know, that's a problem. I had a person come into my office one time. They're a brand-new believer. I think they believed once I give my heart to Jesus, I'll never do anything wrong again. They came in the, that week after giving their heart to Jesus. They were just pacing in my office. They were just, like, nervous. They were like, oh. I said, what's going on, man? He said, I gave my heart to Jesus, and I, I, I've sinned. And I said, well, join the club. They said, you've sinned? I said, no, I haven't, but other people have. I mean, I know that most people. I said, of course I have. And again, I told them what I just told you. I'm not promoting it. I'm not endorsing it. I'm not saying we should be comfortable with it. I'm not saying we should be friends with sin. But we've made mistakes and done wrong and, and sinned. I get this out of the Bible because, again, not an overhead for it, but 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 tells us this. I write these things to you, my dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not sin. So there's the goal. I write these things to you so you will not sin. But if you do sin, but if you do sin, we have an advocate before the Father. An advocate before the Father, uh, an intercessor, a defense attorney on our behalf. He's always living, Jesus is, to make intercession for us. And then it goes on to say, he, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, this is not complex, but we probably haven't paused to think about it. When I look at verse 1, I'm thinking, okay, is my salvation secured then in my flawless execution of my Christianity? It is not. Can I have hope in my flawless execution of my Christianity? I cannot. So what's John saying? Where's my hope then? In Jesus, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's where our hope is. I can't have a, what a miserable life it would be if I thought it was my behavior that kept me in for another day or another week. Now, are you with me here? I'm not promoting that we should be soft on sin. I'm not promoting that, ah, we don't care about sin, live however you want. I'm telling you the truth, though. We're not going to do this thing flawless. We're not going to do perfect, but we're going to progress. And when I have a day where I go, oh, my goodness, it's okay to feel bad. It's okay to to talk to Jesus about. It's okay to call upon the Holy Spirit to help you, but it's not okay to say, I just should give up because I can't do it. No, it's Jesus' atoning sacrifice who has covered all that and made us perfect forever. Now, how about this? You say, well, it's not that I sin every now and then. I really struggle with sin. Can a Christian really struggle with sin? Yes. Once again, I get that from the Bible. 
in Hebrews 12, 4, it says, in your struggle against sin. Hebrews 12, 4. In your struggle against sin. Now, it's written to believers because unbelievers do not struggle against sin. They flow with it. But in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You have not yet resisted to the point of dying. So keep fighting the good fight of faith. Keep resisting. Keep calling upon the Holy Spirit to help you. Keep allowing the Word of God to transform you and renew you as you keep moving forward in your walk with God. So here's another sign of salvation and a little bit of a caution. It's on the topic of bearing fruit. Like I said, Galatians 5 tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. Now, this is not how the system works, but I want to give you a human example so you can understand the spiritual concept. Are you with me? Jesus did that all the time. This isn't how it works, but this will give us an understanding. Somebody, is they've been raised in a horrible environment. They've been trained in sin and immorality and ungodliness, and they're unethical, and they've just lived a horrible life and been taught how to live horribly. One day they get to themselves and say, this life doesn't work. This is a horrible way to live. And they say to themselves, and when I look at people that are further down the road living this kind of life, it only gets worse. And so I said, I need to make a change here. And they give their lives to Jesus. Now here's the part, this is the way this works, but I want you to understand it. They come to Jesus on a scale from 1 to 10, with 1 being the best and 10, or 1 being the worst and 10 being the best. They come to Jesus a negative 5. You know what I'm saying? They're so far behind the eight ball, they're so far behind the game, they're like a negative five. But they love Jesus. So they start growing, and they go to the Word, and they change their lives, they submit themselves to Jesus, and their life begins to transform. And a few years later, they're no longer a negative five, they're a positive three. That's a lot of progress. Eight points. Now again, this is not how God ranks you. He's not there going, I think they gained two points this week. Okay, we're made perfect forever, but I want us to get this understanding. Then somebody else, they've been raised in a wholesome environment with a wholesome family. They've been taught moralities and ethics and goodness and kindness. They've even gone to church with some regularity. They've been taught the golden rule. They had parents that modeled for them a good way to live. But one day they say to themselves, being good isn't good enough. I need a savior. And they give their life to Jesus. But they start off on the journey like a positive four. They started off on the journey further ahead than the other person is after two or three years. Now here's the caution. If we're not careful, we'll see the person who started off as a four and over a few years moved up to a five, and we'll say, oh, what a wonderful Christian they are. Well, I'm happy they're a wonderful Christian. But then we'll look at the other person and go, they need to really get their act together. Oh, if they were only as wonderful as this person. So let's not judge unjustly. Let's not judge without the information. Let's love. Let's bless. Let's pray. Let's celebrate every victory with our brothers and sisters. You know, the person went from four to five, praise God's progress. But going from a negative five to a three, that's huge. And we should celebrate it. Now, here's a little another analogy. Until I was four and a half years old, I lived in a little town of rugby. You hear me mention and brag about that every now and then, in a little town of rugby. I don't know what the population of rugby is. No one may know. Probably 100 people or less. So here, here it is. But at four and a half, I moved to a huge town, the town of Hope. Now think about this. I'm four years old, so we went from less than 100 people to 2,000 people. That's a metropolis to a four-year-old. 
And my family had purchased a, a defunct farm. It was a little seven acres, a little farm. And I mean, with a, not figuratively a barn falling in, a barn literally falling in. So the outbuildings were all falling apart. And so we had this seven acres here. And out, not in the back 40, we didn't have that much. In the back two was a tree standing up all by itself. And as a little kid, I ventured out there and looked at that tree. And man, it looked like it had been beat up by life, struck by lightning, pecked on, eaten up, bug infested, everything. But I looked closely, and it was bearing some fruit. And what it was bearing was apples. Now, I wasn't real into, I didn't look at it and say, I think from the judge of that bark, this must be an apple tree. I think the leaves must be an apple tree. I was probably five or six years old. The apple told me it was an apple tree. Now, the fruit wasn't very good. It wasn't very pretty. It was pretty bug-infested and worm-infested and all that, but it was an apple tree. Now, you could look at it well, that's no apple tree. Yes, it is. It was bearing apples. My uncle had an apple orchard, about seven or eight trees in there, and guess what happened in the apple orchard? They put a fence around it to keep the animals out. They took care of the bugs and the insects and everything they could do to make sure that the apple trees were well taken care of. And there's this one apple tree I remember. It had a bumper crop every year, man. Big, beautiful, delicious fruit. So much fruit that they had to, if you've ever seen trees that bear fruit, they had to put props, wood up underneath the branches because they were bearing so much fruit, they would actually snap the branches off. That's the kind of Christians I want us to be. We're bearing so much fruit, man. We just, I think they're going to break from the weight of, that, of Jesus on them. Uh, that's okay because Jesus will just make that better. So here was this tree, and... I want to use a spiritual analogy. Maybe you're the tree that's bearing abundant fruit. If you are, please don't look at my little apple tree in the back too, all by itself, beat up and say, that's no Christian. That's no apple tree. But there's also something to learn from that. If you're the apple tree out there beat up by life, the reason that apple tree was like that is it was all alone. That apple tree was out there unprotected, unfenced, no one to shepherd it, no one to care for it, no friends around. It was just whatever life came, it got beat up with it. That's a bad way to live. I encourage all of you, make sure you have Christian friends. Make sure you have a Christian community. Make sure you have Jesus and, and leadership that can help speak into your lives and help you be everything that you're supposed to be. God's calling us to bear much fruit. And this is my Father glorified, Jesus said, that you bear much fruit. So let's be bumper crop Christians. So don't go it alone. Cooperate with the Lord, and have some brothers and sisters to help you grow in God. Now, here's an insight from Jack Hayford. Back many years ago, I wasn't a pastor very long, I went out to Van Nuys, California every summer and for like five years in a row and did these um, college intensives, they were called. And Pastor Hayford would speak. It's called the School of Pastoral Nurture. So he's trying to train pastors how to be better pastors. And the cool thing about this was sometimes you go to conferences and there's 2,000, 1,000, 5,000, 6,000 people there. That's cool. That's worthy. That's fine. But you really can't raise your hand in 5,000 people and say, I got a question. Can we unpack this a little bit? But in these, they were limited to 30 people. So you could actually interact, ask questions, deal with things, look at stuff. Jack Hayford was saying something one day, and I don't even remember what the topic was, but it's so stuck with me, I want to pass it along to you. Because every one of us here as a Christian has probably examined ourselves, looked at ourselves, and said, I know I have, I wonder if I'm really a believer. I wonder if I'm really a Christian. What, am, I, am I the real deal? So here's what Jack Hayford said. He said, if you are worried that you have a problem, 
you probably don't. And I thought, that's interesting. Now, how it applied to me was this. At the time, there'd be situations going on. Maybe a family was struggling or a marriage was struggling or something was going on at the church, and I would, I would think, I want to go to the elder meeting and share this with the elders, but I would think this, I don't want to be a gossip. I don't want to go in and talk about somebody's struggling marriage or, or hardship they're going through, but I'd really like the elders to give prayer support and help and blessing to these people, but I'd think, I don't want to be a gossip. When he told me that, a light bulb came on in my head, and I said, hold it. If I'm worried that I have the problem, I don't have it. I'm not a gossip. Because I started thinking about this. If I was a gossip, I'd be thinking, ooh, I cannot wait for the elder meeting tonight. I got some juicy tidbits to pass along. I can't wait to do this. So he said, if you're worried about having a problem, you probably don't, because people who do have the problem don't even think about it. They just plow right on through. Well, I started thinking about that from this perspective. If you're worried, I wonder if I'm a Christian. I wonder if I really love the Lord. I wonder if I have eternal life. I wonder if heaven is my home. If you're worried about that, you probably don't have the problem. I did say probably. We should still examine ourselves and test ourselves. Because I want to ask this question. How many people do you know who don't know Jesus or love Jesus? Or how many people do you know who have said a little prayer like the examples I gave, but they have no desire to follow after Jesus or love Jesus? How many of them are lying awake at night wondering, I wonder if I'm a real believer? I wonder if I really have Jesus. I wonder if I really, you know, have eternal life. None of them are thinking about that. They're thinking about their own life, their own world, everything. They don't even have a thought about Jesus. The fact that you're thinking about and pondering and meditating and examining and testing is a really good sign that you're a believer. Because I don't find lost people doing that. That's what's interesting about church signs to me. Church signs will be out there and you'll see something like, in-depth study on the book of Romans to secure your salvation. I think there's no lost person that drives by and says, Woo, honey, hey, you want to take the family to the book of Romans study? They're not thinking that. Because unless the Holy Spirit pinpoints that, they're not thinking that. But if you're thinking and wondering about your eternity, it's a really good sign that Jesus is Lord of your life. Now, I had a person ask me this, last thing I want to deal with today. So we're talking about our sins are forgiven. They're gone, they're removed, as far as the east is from the west. And so somebody asked me after one of the services, they said, then does everybody go to heaven? The answer is no, according to scripture. Now, not according to us being the fruit-bearing apple tree who looks down on somebody who we don't think their fruit qualifies, that's not our business. It is our business to teach the gospel. It is our business to proclaim it. It is our business to encourage people to examine themselves and look at themselves and, and see where they are in their walk with God. But it's not for me to judge whether you're a good enough Christian because if you love Jesus, we're all in process. See, there's things in my life that I've conquered, things in your life that you've conquered that I haven't. We don't need to beat each other up and see whether somebody's a Christian or not. Let's just all encourage one another. That's what actually the Bible says. Let's not forsake the assembly of ourselves as some are getting in the habit of doing, but let's get together all the more and encourage one another, encourage one another to keep growing in God. So here's a great verse for heaven and hell, Romans chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Or do you show contempt? Contempt is hatred or displeasure for the riches of his, God's kindness, forbearance, his tolerance, and patience. Do you show distaste and and contempt for God's kindness, his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. The kindness of God is designed to lead you to repentance. You woke up today, you're in this building, you have more than enough kindness from God today 
to give your life to Jesus. You woke up with enough health in your body to be here. There's a million other people who had changed places with you like that. You woke up with enough health in your body. You had transportation. You had food. You say, I don't have any transportation. You had a friend or a family member who loved you enough to bring you. The kindness of God. The Bible says that God is kind to the just and the unjust, the righteous and the wicked. There's farmers out here, since it's farm country and farm season, there's farmers out here who may not believe in God, may even hate God. Guess what God's going to do for them? He's going to give them rain. He's going to give them sunshine. They may have a bumper crop. And in fact, they may have a bumper crop and say, I don't need God. Look at my fields, I got a bumper crop. Well, you're missing something. The kindness and goodness of God was designed to cause you to say, wow, I don't even have any thought for God or love for God, and look how much he's blessed me. I need to serve him. I need to know him. I need to give my life to him. But this verse takes a sad turn. It says it's intended to lead you to repentance, a change of path, a change of mind, to head in a different direction. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you see, that didn't say because God's ticked off at you and he's going to get you. No, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself. You are storing up wrath against yourself. You are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. Is there a day of wrath with God? Absolutely there is. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, not right with him. You're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his, I want us to pay attention to these two words, his righteous judgment, his righteous judgment, his righteous, his judgment is righteous and true and pure. His righteous judgment will be revealed and God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now, somebody's probably saying, oh no, there it is. I knew I was in trouble. I'm going to get repaid for what I've done. Not if you're a Christian. This verse was written to the unrepentant, this verse was written to the stubborn, not to the believers. This was written to the unrepentant and the stubborn. If you are a believer in Christ and you've judged yourself and examined yourself and say, I see that I'm in the faith, like Paul told me to do, I judge myself, then there is no wrath for you. You are not designed for wrath. All your sins are forgiven. They're forgotten. They're removed. How can you be judged and punished for something that Jesus took? Again, how unjust would God be to say, and how foolish... I sent Jesus and punished him for all your sins. Yeah, but I don't think that's enough. I'm going to punish you too. No, there is, we're a new creation in Christ. There are no sins to be punished for. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, you could use that as an excuse to say, I just want to go sin, but that concerns me. When somebody sees the beautiful, loving, wonderful hand of God and says, look how kind he is. He'll never punish you for your sins. He loves you immensely. And if your first response is, great, I'm going to go live like the devil then I have to ask you and challenge you, are you a Christian? Now, I'm not saying the devil won't whisper that in your ear. He's whispered in my ear before. Well, if God forgives you for all your sins, then it doesn't matter what you do. Hmm. <gasps> yes, it does. It does matter what I do. It does matter how I live. I want to represent Jesus well. Do I always do it? No, I don't, but I want to. That needs to be our goal. We need to get better at it and better at it and better at it. So we're growing and we're not punished, we're not held accountable. And if we had ever realized, hold on, if I'm the righteousness of God in Christ, and he's not counting my sins against me, then how about I go live like that? How about it transform my life? How about it put me on a different path? How about it send me on a different way? How about it give me new life? That's the end result of knowing that we are free because we have this beautiful gospel. 
And then we need to share that beautiful gospel with other people. Because you know what people are hearing? And I'm not saying the churches around here teach that, but I tell you, you run into people. I just thought God was mad and hated us all. I just thought God wanted to kill everybody. I just thought if I came to Jesus, if I made a simple mistake, he was going to crush me. He was going to strike me with lightning. He was going to do something horrible to me. No, God loves you. He's passionate for you. And when he moved heaven and earth to win you and bring you into the kingdom, why do you think it's so easy that he'll reject you? He wants you to grow and continue growing in God.